Almighty and merciful God, we come before you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on this beautiful day that you have brought forth. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning because of your great faithfulness. And that, Lord, you're indeed one who is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we ask in Jesus' name that you would open up our hearts, our minds, to receive your living, abiding, refreshing, instructive, corrective word of God. And that it might have its full impact in each one of our minds, in our hearts, in the souls of our lives, that you would ever refine us and cause us to be the people of God that you have called us to be in Christ Jesus. This we pray in his dear name. Amen. What is the goal of our Christian life? What is the goal for your Christian life? What do you think is the goal for your loved one's life in Christ? This is an important subject and an important question that needs to be answered by each one of us. And it's important because sometimes we give answers that we may have learned by rote. Those answers that we have read about in a book somewhere, a Christian book by an author. In many respects, some of you, even from memory, would say the response from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's a good statement. Another one would be to know God and to make him known. That also is a good statement. But how about still another one? Saying that we are called to live by faith as devoted followers of Jesus Christ and in relationship with the God who has redeemed us through Christ. You see, all of these answers and these responses, you might say, are framed right within the teaching of Scripture. But I believe that we can lose sight of what those statements say. We can lose sight of how we answer this question, what is the goal of our Christian life, by not really believing that we as Christians are able to reach that goal. One of the things that Jesus made very clear during his earthly ministry, it's found in actually Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He said this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness 
and all these other things will be added to you. To seek God's kingdom, to seek his righteousness is the goal of the Christian life. In fact, R.C. Sproul in his book entitled Pleasing God wrote this. A more accurate translation of this concept would be seek ye first above all else, above all things, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek the kingdom. Seek righteousness, the righteousness of God. These are the priorities of the Christian life. One thing I need to say before we move on, and that is this. The unbeliever has no capacity to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And the reason why I want to say that is because a lot of times today we use contemporary thoughts about people seeking God. But the unbelieving cannot seek God. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So this seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness has to be those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would like to uh, encourage you to consider this. Only believers in Christ are so graced by God and by his indwelling Holy Spirit that we are able to keep on seeking the kingdom of God and seeking the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And it starts at our conversion. But it is not just at our conversion this transformation takes place. It is ongoing. It is supposed to go on throughout our lives by faith in Christ. And therefore, it involves for believers, a persistence in searching out for God and for his will for one's life. It involves also a dedication of prayer, of asking God for help and assistance as we go along throughout this life in seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. And thirdly, it involves hard work, labor, on our part. It doesn't come to us on its own. We must search it out. We must seek it out. We must work for it in order to achieve what it means to be living to reach the goal of the Christian life. This Sunday and every Sunday morning, we say the Lord's Prayer together, don't we? And part of the Lord's Prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that the prayer of our hearts as believers today? 
that God's kingdom come, God's will be done in all areas of our lives, every day of our lives, every moment of our lives. This ties in very closely with what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He says this to the Colossian believers and to us today. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking those things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with him in glory. Which brings us to our text this morning in Ephesians 4. Because the Apostle Paul here in this particular text is talking about how do we live our Christian life? How do we live the Christian life to its goal? And Paul instructs us as believers that as we live by faith in Christ, we must be being transformed, being transformed to live in God's kingdom and in accordance with his righteousness. In other words, folks, We are called to be living the kingdom out here and now in this world. Let me say that again. We are called. In fact, there must be this kingdom living here and now among God's people. This means that our former manner of life before when we were without Christ is is to be gone. It is not to be referenced again. It is not to be uh, something that we lean on. It is to be dead. It is to be removed from us. The way we lived without Christ before we were converted is not the way we're supposed to be living at all today. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as he is the way, the truth, and the life, he has given us an example in himself that we are to follow as believers. We are to recognize that we have died to sin and now live to righteousness. For it was by his wounds on the cross of Calvary that indeed we are now healed. As it says there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. So, 
Let me ask you, how does this kingdom life work out in your life and in mine? Well, Paul uses in this passage a metaphor of changing garments. And he uses it that way to show us that we need to take off those corrupt and worthless clothing of the old self so that we might put on the pure and priceless and righteous clothing of new life in Christ. We are no longer to live by the references of our old self in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we deal with people, in the way in which we do our work, no longer that way. We are to live in the righteousness of Christ. And in verses 17 through 19, Paul gives us a vivid description of the depravity as well as the proclivities of our old self. Look how he describes it here in verse 17 through 19. It's a lifestyle that one thing is sure of, it is always being operating in the context of our sin. He says, in the futility of our minds, that indeed we are being darkened in our understanding that we are excluded, we were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the hardness of our hearts, that we were once callous to the things of God. In fact, our consciences were seared because of our sin, that indeed there was in every respect the practice of every kind of sensuality, with impurity and greediness. What a dismal thought of thinking about trying to go back to what we once were. Trying to use those resources that were ours in our ignorance and in the fallenness of our sin. One thing is certain. We need to stop trying to use the means and the manners of the old self. Frankly, in the church today, we are finding Christians trying to wear both kinds of clothing. The grave clothes that are supposed to be dead of the old self as well as the wedding clothes of the bride of Christ. And this cannot be the practice of believers in Christ in the church. How does it show itself? Well, look how the church today is sanctioning and allowing same-sex marriage. Look at how the church today is ordaining homosexuals into the clergy. Look how 
many of the views of the world that does not have this perspective of God's truth in their minds and in their conscience, how that's being adapted into the way a church is supposed to function and operate today. These are just some general ways in which, indeed, the grave clothes of the old self are trying to be worn with the wedding clothes of the bride of Christ. And it cannot be that way. Those old ways, because of Christ's death for us, are inoperative. At least they're supposed to be. They are worn out. They are useless. The old self has died with Christ. And we are to live in and by the grace of God with Christ. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our spiritual union with Christ demands, it demands the death and burial of the old self so that we might live in newness of life by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul wrote about this very thing in Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 and 13 where he says, We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Well, with this in mind, it's not only that we need to lay aside the old self, but he gives us a positive admonition as well. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. When we became new creatures in Christ, a spiritual revolution of our minds took place. It transpired as we received God's gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. Our minds, in our thoughts, in our beliefs, in the motives of our hearts were radically changed so that we were no longer to be, as we were, self-centered, but God-centered and other-centered in our perspective on following Christ. God gave us this new spiritual perspective of life 
but not only of life, but also of death as well. Death no longer has its sting. The grave no longer has its victory for those who are in Christ Jesus. But not only that, he produced within our conscience a, a new keen sense of morality according to the principles of his word on how we are supposed to live. Indeed, he's even put within us a want to, a want to, to follow God that wasn't there before, to do the right thing and to shun away that which is wrong. This too began at our conversion, but it is to be that ongoing process of God renewing our minds, renewing our minds, and we, the way that's going to happen is through us being people of the word and being taught by the Holy Spirit and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you here I've talked with personally within the last few weeks and one of the things that's been on your heart when we've been able to see all the things that are going on in our world today is the recognition that we need spiritual revival in our land. Are you in agreement with that? Yeah. There is a real sense among Christians that we need to be praying and that we need to be asking God to bring revival and renewal to our land. But let me ask you this. Where do you think that's going to start? It's going to start with the church. That's where it's going to start. If we want to see revival and renewal in our land, then we need to be a people who want re revival and renewal in our faith walk with Christ. That's where it's going to begin. If you're waiting for this great savior to come into and become the president of the United States, you're going about the wrong way. It begins with us. And how much do we want that renewal? How much do we want God to revive our hearts? Paul admonishes there in 12, uh, Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The third point that he gives us here is not only do we need to lay aside the old self, not only do we need to have our minds renewed, but he says we need to put on the new self. 
In other words, it involves the renewing of our minds. It, it involves us being people of the word and walking close to God each and every day. But it also means that we're going to take that word and we're going to put it to practice. We're going to live it out. We're not even going to know it in our heads. It's going to embrace us in our hearts and it's going to show itself in actual life behavior. Because putting on the new self is indeed a spirit-filled transformation. It involves us radically walking away from the things of this world and living peculiarly in this world for Christ. He says here that this radical shift only comes by God's grace because it originates from God himself. It is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. Peter wrote about this very thing in his first letter where we read there in verse 16 as obedient children, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, in the end of these verses, there are actually six points, and I'm going to go through them rather hurriedly with you, that Paul says are six, if you will, major transforming actions and attitudes of heart that need to be part of our Christian life and need to be the goal in which we are seeking to live for Christ in this world. And there are six of them here. First one's found in verse 25 of Ephesians 4. And basically it's this. We need to stop lying. We need to stop lying. We need to be a people who are truthful, who are honest in all things, who denounce deceitfulness. That is the way of the old, of the old flesh. That is the way of the old self. That is not the way of the spirit. Secondly, found in verses 26 and 27, we need to stop uncontrolled anger. What do I mean by that? There is a righteous anger. And very few of us, when we're exercising anger, are in that category. Christ exerted righteous anger to injustice, to blasphemy and to other circumstances while he was here on earth. Yet there's a caution here given to us that we're not only to have 
anger under control, but to make sure that we don't sin. Okay? And this caution of not sinning warrants us to be exercising self-control and constraint when it comes to our anger. In other words, instead of uncontrolled anger, we should be bridling our anger and making sure that we're not sinning in that anger. And if we do, to repent and to seek forgiveness and not allow the sun to go down on our anger. Because he says here, it could give the devil an opportunity. The third point is this, verse 28, stop stealing. Well, the unique thing about this in this particular letter is that indeed this letter was written to Christians, right? And he is telling them to stop stealing. And it is in the present tense, meaning that they sure haven't uh, shed off the grave clothes completely. Okay? The grave clothes of the old self, there was still some stealing going on. He says, stop stealing. In other words, stop pilfering. Stop panhandling. Stop looking for welfare from the government when you have the ability to work. And one of the things that we've all been sort of um, shoved into here in America during this COVID period is that we, we have looked to the government to supply our needs. And we have taken that money and we have not worked for it, although you could say you paid the taxes. But in essence, what you're doing is you're conditioning yourself to think that you can get something for nothing. And that is not true because our government is trying to add more controls and more limits to your freedom by giving you what you, they think you need. We need to work. It's right in the commandments there in Exodus chapter 20, right? Very clear. Six days you shall work and do your labor. And working's not bad. It is not the four-letter dirty word. It is good for us to be working. God wants us to work if we're able In fact, Paul says it this way to another church. He says, if anyone will, is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. The fourth point he brings out here is that we should stop corrupt speech, foul language, disgusting words, rotten, useless words that have no restorative value. These are prohibited. And yet, if we hit our thumb with a hammer or we have somebody come across us and get in our way, 
whether it be in an automobile or in a um, aisle of the supermarket, isn't it amazing how quickly those old words pop up, right? The Lord doesn't want us talking like the world. We should not be calling people names. There should be no abusive words or the tearing down of people's character with words. There should be no injurious words and condemning words to one another. Fifth point. He makes it clear that these attitudes of heart that are coming out in our speech are indeed attitudes of our hearts. Because he says, stop grieving the Holy Spirit. That means we need to purge away bitter resentment, vengeful complaints, obsessive, slow cooking anger, violent yelling. One of the words here means bad hardy, hardiness, badness from our lives because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Instead, he shows us how we're supposed to respond to one another and people in this world. He says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Our speech needs to be coming out from a transforming life, a life living with Christ that is gracious, that is kind, that is building up, that is done in sincere love for one another, that is always ready to forgive and offer forgiveness to those who have offended us, just as God in Christ has forgiven each one of us. It is true, beloved, that our old nature of sin exists. And it will not die until we are with Christ. But let that not be an excuse for wearing both, both sets of clothes, the grave clothes and the wedding clothes. It is also true that our old nature has no authority over us. And we must persistently fight against and overcome its influence by God's powerful grace through the truth and the transforming of his word in our lives and by the spirit of God to empower us and guide us into newness of life. In other words, we need to be about a continual renewal 
a cultivating a deeper attachment to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a detachment from this world. And that's going to involve some do's and don'ts in our Christian life. And just like my wife was looking for scissors, I had it as an illustration. Just like both scissor blades work together and are needed to make the cut, so both faith steps working together are needed to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Of saying yes to Christ. Because in saying yes to Christ, we are saying no to the old man and to Satan, our adversary. Beloved, new, let's have a renewal, a revival that begins with us by putting off the old ways and putting on Christ's new way. Amen.